You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker, Mort Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where we do our best to bring you into the world of rules-based investing by sharing our knowledge and hard-learned lessons over the last few decades, hoping that you can avoid making some of the mistakes that we did. As usual, let me start by saying good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hi, both. How are you keeping? Doing well. Good, good morning. Good afternoon. Yeah, keeping well. Adjusted to European time again, so that's always nice after our New York adventure. Um, just a couple of things that um, sort of caught my eye. Uh, of course, Friday was the first day of November. So when I look at some of these events, uh, they probably cover more the month of October. Um, but of course, we had a late late in the month uh, rate cut uh, by the Fed. Uh, so we saw definitely more risk on trades uh, in October, which, um, you know, made the sell-off in fixed income markets continue for a while uh, longer. And uh, I'm sure that is one of the struggles that uh, trend followers in general had. Um, but of course, other than that, uh, we see a change of of the uh, Lagarde, so to speak, at the ECB. We still have the uncertainty about US-China trade relations. And, and now we know that we're going to have a Christmas election in the UK. Um, so um, it seems to me like the current decade, which when you think about it, is only two months longer than this decade is over, still might throw some interesting stuff uh, into the markets, some surprises, um, as as it usually uh, does. Um, but anyway, other than that, you know, I um, nothing that kind of was stood out completely, uh, Moritz. Um, so always interested to hear how your week uh, went in the trend following world yeah i'm up a teeny teeny tiny bit but it's really been back and forth this past week you know one day up one day down up again down again and then up again um and but what i noticed is that some of my positions they started moving so i've reduced for the first time in a long time some of the longs in the bonds right so i'm now less long of jgbs less long of 10-year notes even of the boons which have been performing so well uh, in the past couple of months. So that has changed a bit. I'm also getting less long the dollar. That's one of those positions which I had strongly long for pretty much most of the year, especially against, you know, um, Australian dollar, but also against the euro. So I still have that long position, but not to the full extent anymore. And in equities, it's, you know, it's one of those markets where, you know, the the observer may sit there and say those things are trading super high, but you know what is super high? It's all subjective talking. Um, you have to get in if those things are making new highs, and equities have been making new highs, so I'm getting longer in those equities. Again, Nikkei, Midcap, Dow Jones, all of those, even DAX, uh, a bit more on the long side. So the portfolio has shifted a bit, um, not you know massively, but you know it changed. And um, like you said, Niels, uh, we'll see what the last two months of the year will bring with some vote in the UK ahead of us and Brexit, uh, yes or no, who knows, a new ECB president, impeachment, um, you name it. 
<laughs> it's a it's a box of presents. It is a box of presents, absolutely. I mean, I guess on our side, um, perhaps the most exciting thing was uh, at the end of October, meaning end of Thursday, uh, that completed 45 years of uh, continuous track record on our side. Um, but of course, the month of October was exactly like the previous 44 years and 11 months, you know, full of surprises and uh, unpredictable uh, news. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, there were some uh, strong U.S. markets on the back of the uh, of the um, unemployment uh, news. And so equities did well for us. And actually, we've been ramping up equity exposure for the last uh, month or so in particular. So that's actually our largest exposure now. It's taken over, like on your side, a little bit uh, more. It's, it's taken over fixed income, which also have seen uh, somewhat of a reduction in the last uh, week or so. So kind of similar picture uh, uh, on our side. Um, in terms of PNL uh, for the week, um, probably slightly down maybe uh, for, for the week. Um, um, you know, actually overall fixed income did okay for the week, even though they uh, eased off a little bit uh, yesterday. Equities, okay, equities did okay. Net gas bit of a challenge for us with its 10% up move uh, during the week. Uh, coffee, bit of a challenge for us, for sure. Currencies, probably consistently uh, across the uh, currency sector, um, we, we saw some give back uh, with the weaker dollar. Um, and uh, yeah, nothing else uh, stood out, made a bit of money in gold and silver, but nothing, nothing too noticeably. So uh, yeah, interesting um what the last uh, couple of months will uh, will give us um still a good year um but certainly down month in october following a down month in september so kind of a natural reaction uh, or correction i think on on the strong run we saw in the beginning of the year um yeah pretty much what we saw what about uh, you jerry not a lot of changes uh trend position wise uh, long bean oil the only grain I think we're long uh, the currencies the they're still long the dollar and then except against uh, Mexican peso Russian ruble made new highs I think this week I looked at all the stocks and they're just you know they just look different some are sideways some are making new highs we got long Tesla first time mm -hmm. ever on that one had a big crazy up move <clears throat> i looked at the indices the sub indices of the s p like 10 different uh major and they're all in pretty much all-time highs except i think uh, energy so that was kind of interesting um i don't subscribe to like uh, more trend equals more trend necessarily but it's just what's happening silver and gold are hanging in there platinum palladium awesome uh haven't done anything in energy in a long time. Uh, got out of my cocoa long at the lows, so I'm kind of rooting for it to go back down. <laughs> that was like one of the first things I was told, you know, don't root and don't uh, remember these positions that you just got stopped out of and stuff. So uh, still haven't learned that lesson. Uh, got uh, Looks like uh, lead and nickel are hanging in there on the long side. 
got flat my zinc short and then everything else uh, copper and aluminum was short so it's oh and the probably the biggest negative mover was uh cattle the cattle rally from the shorts that didn't work out so uh, but not a lot of change you know just small i like it that way that's funny you say this thing about uh, you know uh, getting out uh, and then hoping the market will go back uh, down i mean we we know from the academic world that you know the pain of loss feels twice as worse as the the joy of gain but i think actually it may come to surprise for for many people that actually regret is even worse um because with regret we look back and we second guess our decisions and the emotions around that decision don't fade i mean i know we're rules based but if it was a discretionary decision so it kind of continues to sit in inside us um but um you know i just hope at least that people won't regret that they don't have enough exposure to trend when when it's going to be needed sometime in the future um we'll see about that now i heard some rumors jerry that uh, we may have a new all-time high in twitter likes as well or love for one particular tweet as well so it's not just the equity markets making new highs no you know and you know it's just like the markets you just don't know where it's going to come from uh Uh, before I push the Twitter send, yeah. all the time, I'm like, is this really worth it? Is this <laughs> going to be a good one, a big one? I mean, sometimes I really like them, and I get two likes. And one is you, and one is Moritz. So, Great. Sure. <laughs> and then sometimes, you know, out of, out of nowhere, it strikes a nerve. Uh, this one I got out of, um, oh, the irrelevantinvestor.com. And he talks about uh, the best thing to follow is kind of trend, all-time highs. And at all-time highs, he says, so everyone is bullish, right? Hardly. Per Barron's, 27% of money managers are bullish on stocks over the next 12 months, the lowest in 20 years. All-time highs makes people more cautious. And I just remembered uh, kind of a pithy quote from 1983 uh, that goes something like, uh, people have a tendency to be hopeful with their losses and afraid with their profits. And this is the reason why I think trend following works. Uh, you know, and then the trend following way of looking at life is if you're, if you have a small loss, you should be fearful that it's gonna get turn into a bigger loss. And if you have a nice profit, you should be hopeful that it's going to be turned into a bigger profit. And I think uh, everyone talks about taking, following the rule, uh, taking small losses, but equally, if not more important is, um, Don't take small wins. Let your winners be bold with your winners. And this struck a nerve with people. They loved it. So that was nice. It's interesting. I was I had a very, very long drive, a 14-hour drive on Thursday. Uh, and so I um, listened to a couple of um, audiobooks. Uh, one of them, I think it was called Outrageous. It's, it's about what makes certain things more sh likely to be shared why do people share and why does it go viral and uh, from memory at least um what what the author said that things from their research things that makes people more likely to share uh, could be on social media but actually most things that are important doesn't get even shared on social media which surprised me but anyways it's things that makes you go or like surprised kind of i didn't realize that that's interesting um so it's actually quite a good uh, i haven't finished the book yet i have to go on another drive in order to do that i guess but uh, it's interesting and as you said you don't always know why things suddenly get uh, a lot of likes no you know it's uh, for my followers 
the closer I get to playing old trend following, the more they seem to enjoy the encouragement and validating their worldview, as, as do I. So um, I, I stray out into other t topics and sports and politics, zero likes. So there's, there's a good lesson. <laughs> <laughs> cool stuff, cool stuff. And of course, the theme of that tweet, I mean, the fact that we should love our winners and we should, you know, get out of our losers, um, not surprising to any trend follower, but um, nevertheless, hard to do for most people, I guess. Another thing that I don't particularly enjoy is uh, bad-mouthing the stock trend. Uh, we talked about this before on air, and then you guys just told about your increasing your equity positions, and it's just trends. We're just following those trends, whether it's indexes or single names. Um, it's, it's improving the portfolio to have this diversification of equities in there, and we don't think that we should be pigeonholed as just uh, how are you doing when equities do poorly, uh, but it's the perfect portfolio versus the perfect hedge. You know, I'm not claiming to be perfect, but uh, I don't think we're on this planet for one reason only, just to uh, be a hedge, uh, get a 5 or 10% allocation and be a hedge for s something else. So uh, right. the bonds are great. They're in an uptrend. We're making money. Some of the currencies, we made money on those trends. And hey, equities too. Uh, we don't, I don't want to root against the equities. Uh, so, oh, let's hope for another 2008 so it can all crash. We can relive those years again and make a lot of money. So I think it's kind of silly that trend followers do that. You know, I was just thinking about um, most of the people I meet and when they speak about their portfolios and their trading and they're not trend following traders, they they trade equities, right? That That's most investors' portfolio is is equities. And because, you know, they have no commodities, they don't have an active view on currencies. Sometimes it's difficult for them to get exposure to bonds because they're OTC and they're not trading futures. So it's really equities. And, and then they go like, well, you know, equities are trading fairly high based on whatever metric. Um, and, you know, to your point, then you become afraid with the profits. We have the advantage of seeing equities as just one of so many positions over time that it's, I guess, easier for us to just, you know, close our eyes, follow the rules, um, hold on to those equities, or even like I just did, uh, increase the exposure to those markets um, because it's really just, you know, one part of, of a larger thing, whereas for most other people, it is the part of the one portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to uh, also weigh in on this. I mean, I think uh, Jerry is right that it's very, um, it's dangerous when we start being uh, pigeonholed with certain mandates, like, you know, what is your mandate? Well, my mandate is not to make money just because the equity markets go down for four weeks. That's not the mandate of of our firm. It's not the mandate, I think, of most trend followers. Um, our mandate is to make absolute returns. And historically, they've turned out to be uncorrelated to stocks and bonds, not every day, not every month, but in the long run. And, um, and um, all academic research uh, shows that those characteristics has a positive impact uh, on a traditional portfolio. So I think the unfortunate thing is that when certain parts of the CTA uh, world start promoting their own strategies, um, you know, in the light of trend followers failing to deliver on their mandate. I mean, it's not a mandate defined by us. It's a mandate defined by them to fit their purposes. Um, so I think we have to be careful with that. It's very, 
it's obviously very tempting right now, and it seems to be working to position your strategy as something that can make money when equities go down, um, like in February of last year, like in Q4 of last year. But you fail to look at the, the full picture uh, when you just hone in on a few weeks. I mean, why would you be so concerned about making money for a few weeks? Uh, why not be concerned about, like on our side, we've just completed 45 years of making money. Why wouldn't you be concerned about that? And I think that's what we need to get back to. Uh, we should get away from this short-term focus. We should get away from, quote-unquote, the crisis alpha mandate. I don't think we have that mandate. For those who do, for those who design their strategies to have that mandate, great. All power to them. Keep doing it. But we shouldn't blame others uh, for that. And we shouldn't blame others for having conviction, meaning... You know, we're, as we talked about earlier today, we're, you know, increasing our risk uh, budget in equities because that's where the trend is. But that's because we have, quote unquote, conviction in those trends. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no one who can predict when equity markets will turn. And uh, so as long as the trend is up, we need to be there. Same thing with fixed income markets in the last many, many years. It is the only right place to have made a lot of money. I mean, in fact, I would say if you did make a lot of money in, in fixed income in the last decade or so, you probably weren't a true trend follower. Uh, or you could even argue that you didn't have the, your allocation of markets and risk and so on and so forth, um, you know, fully um, straightened out. Because why would you have too much focus on on other markets that weren't trending? So, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with having other mandates or specific mandates you know to 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 play a role in a portfolio but we sh we don't have to blame others who may have a different mandate and try and impose uh, these restrictions or uh, artificial um uh, classifications uh, in order to um, to make the case anyways just my thoughts well i think it's just a a cheap marketing tactic low class and uh and to trade short term and to put yourself out there and reliably be somebody that can uh <clears throat> help out in a crisis even if it lasts a few days or weeks that's tough it's much tougher than what i do so can just being great to do that can that be enough can you kind of leave me out of it and uh you could talk and laugh and say oh you're so, it's so cute that you still have to do long-term trend following. But just enjoy your own ability and this little world you've created and how you market and sell yourself uh, versus readjusting history as when we came out of the womb, we had this one mandate and now we're not sticking to it. Because it's not the case. Uh, when we first started, Niels, we had marketing material, John Henry, and I remember it vividly. It was basically... Um, Here's what happens. Uh, here's the performance of CTAs, trend-following diversified CTAs, over the last 10 bear markets. We added value. 10, you know, over the entire period. Not, here's what happens when you have a 5 or 10 or 20% sell-off and it rallies back to new highs. It's kind of ironic to be concentrating on all of this stuff when the market's at all-time highs because basically all of that gyrating around with these short-term systems was not necessary. But I tell you what was necessary. It's just what you said: getting your positions correct in those bonds and riding those trends, and not getting out too quickly. A plus.
It's funny you say that, and it just reminds me, I mean, this obsession with focusing on things that may only last for such a short period of time, rather than focusing on things that might last for years, meaning we know that most of the time equities go up, right? Uh, yet there is this tendency to uh, wanting to always drive it back to the focus on, okay, how did we do um, for those um, you know few weeks uh, market go down? I think it's different when you talk about bear markets, you know, long stretch out bear markets. I think that that's fine to be, um, you know, comparing performance during those period of time. But but I think these short term corrections we've seen is 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 not really that we shouldn't worry too much about them. Anyways, anyways, that was a bit of a diversion just because of one little tweet that gave us some inspiration. So I wonder what what the next tweet is going to do. I found this one pretty interesting. It's back to um, they're taking losses and uh, so the psychology of the markets and how trend following adapts and adjusts to, and gets us tries to get us going in the right direction. Uh, this was uh, uh, from a academic paper I read. Investors tend to hold on to the stocks that have made either a negative return since last login or since the purchase. So they're doing. They're not even saying I have a losing trade. It's losing since I last looked at it. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. A negative return. It's a new dimension. Since, yeah, a negative return since latest login <laughs> is sufficient to almost eliminate the conventional disposition effect in our most of our estimates. So the only thing that can overwhelm your emotions uh, more so than a losing position is it's losing since the last time you logged in. Wow, it's <laughs> amazing. What, I love that. I, I thought there was a, there was some um, someone mentioned the number of logins that people with, for example, Robinhood accounts do in a day, and it's mind-boggling. I mean, it's just so frequent you wouldn't believe it. Um, so uh, yeah, I think we have a fetish for uh, for keeping very close eye on our investments, even though that uh, this is the funny part actually. Even with trend following, right? Returns can't be predicted from day to day or even from week to week, you know. But actually, when you look long-term, you probably have much more of a predictive power in terms of what returns are likely to be. So why is it we even bother about trying and, and, and looking at, at these things with such a short uh, time frame? It's an interesting human bias, I guess. One of the things that matches, I think, or, or ties into what you just said is um, one tweet that I really liked. It's, it's one of the ones that you retweeted, Jerry is predicting the future is impossible no one can do it however you can watch the numbers develop strategies and bet smart by larry Hyde. and i think this is you know i've heard something similar in his conversation with map faber two weeks ago maybe this is out of this out of this podcast or this conversation with map and um, this is so true this is the the difference to the casino right i mean we we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but Nobody forces us to place a bet. We can stay out of the markets if we don't like the signals that we get. We're not forced to participate in anything or everything on every day. We can step back, reduce our exposure, come back in when things look better according to our system. That is such a massive advantage for us. We could have a podcast totally just <clears throat> reading uh, the tweets of uh, Wayne and Larry, Larry Height. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of good stuff there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to do another one or another couple of ones before we... 
Yeah, I like this one a lot. I've thought about this over the years, and uh, my, one of my new Twitter friends, Richard, seems uh, really smart, and he uh, has another very good quality. He seems to agree with me a lot. So I like Richard quite a bit. He brought up an issue that I don't think we've talked about, kind of subtle. Uh, I told him I was going to talk about it on the podcast. Hopefully I get this correct. Uh, he uses much bigger words than I do, so we'll see what happens. Every trader can trade trends, but few trend traders are systematic trend traders. The difference lies in whether you hold meaning in a simple price pattern itself or whether you find meaning in a market principle that can be applied using a systematic diversified process. Uh, so I really like that because he's basically saying what we do with this, all these rules and building up this um, strategy, it's so many different components, longs and shorts and the different markets and the uh, money management with the position sizing. And it's like building a very complex home, so many different parts. That's way different than looking at a chart haphazardly or just randomly saying, oh, I'm going to buy that if it goes up. It's, it's in an uptrend, so I'll just buy that. So that I don't think is as good as what we do, of course, which is forcing everything you do through uh, this diversified systematic trend following approach and uh, trading this uh, you know, fixed universe of markets and taking all the trades and following all those trends versus sort of looking at a chart randomly. So would you say, so the difference is in another, just for me to be sure I understand it, so it's the difference between embracing the full process versus just part of the process, right? So we embrace the full process, all the bits and parts, and some of it we don't like and some of it we like more, but we, we take everything because we know that's the right thing to do. And others might just cherry pick and say, yeah, okay, here I can see this uh, trend, so I'm just going to do that, but forgetting about money management, forgetting about you know taking their losses and all of that stuff. Is that... Kind of where he's going, do you think? Yeah, and I think it's the lack of the, a process that <clears throat> makes you have the discipline and carry mm. out a, the trades in, over a certain group of markets uh, mm. you know, all the time. And it kind of gets back to that first tweet uh, where, oh, all-time highs. You know, we should be bullish because it's all-time highs. That's <laughs> an anecdote. That's just like making this claim. It's, is, is that part of your process? Is that part of something you've back-tested? Does all-time highs work? Can you do better than waiting for all-time highs? And so uh, it's a casual observation, maybe, of markets that they're in this trend or that trend versus a serious uh, systematic process. What do you think, Moritz? I agree with all of that. Um, I probably need to do the Charlie Munger and say nothing to add. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree. Good stuff. There's some good nuggets coming out of Twitter this week, I would say. Yeah, so let's uh, do more. We can finish with this one. Uh, I like this one a whole lot. I got this from a stock manager. Probably, yeah, I think he does like trend following a little. Maybe uses a little bit of trend. Um, it goes along past, fails to plumb the depths of possible futures. Many events are possible which have never happened before. Diversification offers an effective first line of defense against low likelihood but large impact scenarios. Then I say history does not equal the future. Uh, and we've talked about this a lot, I have, and then I think it's somewhat confusing or um, and 
sounds contradictory to sort of say, well, you guys are doing these back tests. You're looking at history of these trades, 30 years, 40 years of back testing. But now you're telling me that what's going to happen in the future may look different than this back test. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of ongoing uh, discussion about, you know, what's possible and what's probable. And of course, uh, if it's very vivid, we think it's possible that they will happen. But it may not be very probable. Usually these very vivid events uh, don't happen very often. Um, same with equity crashes, right? They're incredibly vivid and painful uh, when they happen, but they don't happen that often. So um, it's a very important concept, which again, the process that we follow um, takes into account, so to speak. And, you know, you talked about the fact that we look at backtest and we take comfort in backtest, but then we also say that the future will, mo you know, will be different. Um, and um, and that may, to some people, sound confusing. But I think the point uh, of, of all of it is that, you know, it's always different. And so um, we build portfolios and we look at the trade stats. We look at trade stats in different time frames and different time periods. And, and, and the consistency within that is really what's important and that gives us confidence that whatever the future holds you know our systems our models will be able to uh cope and adjust um to to deal with that as well not great all the time not great every month not great every quarter or even year but but in the long run the longer we play this game of trading like you say Niels, the greater the room of possibilities right literally anything can happen it's almost guaranteed that if we trade long enough, something absolutely major will happen. Um, you know, and in fact, there have been so many things all happening already in the past that we tend to forget about them unless they have been like super monster events, right? I mean, but I've, I'm just thinking about, you know, when, when was it, four, five, six weeks ago when we had this attack on the uh, oil production facility in, in Saudi Arabia. Massive spike up in crude oil. Um, didn't really do much sharp portfolios. You know, it's a major event in the markets, in the oil markets at least, and maybe in a couple of weeks or months, uh, it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. I mean, things like that happen, and they're, it's all, like I say, it's almost guaranteed that even more severe things will happen in the markets as we continue trading that. So what is our line of defense? There's two. Diversification is one, right? And, and the other one, is trading in the right size. You cannot have, even if you're diversified, you cannot have an overly great exposure on one bet vis-a-vis -vis another. They need to be equally risk-sized, if you will, um, to equalize your losses and have a more balanced distribution of probabilities going forward. That's really the only thing that we can do. And then just enjoy the ride and see what comes. You know, one of these days we're going to be asked the question, how did you know that stocks were not going to go up for long periods of time? Years and years, they don't go up. And the only thing that's working is the currencies or the commodities or some shorts. And we're going to say we didn't know. We had no idea. But we just came in with a more of a risk-based approach to, with maximum diversification in our rules to uh, because all of the systems we have and all the data we used they too were uh, run over periods where different things were happening, things that had never happened before. So these systems, they have a way of navigating that and getting on board with the trend, protecting the capital, 
uh, regardless of what the fundamental facts are in the, in the history or in the, in the future. So I think history is not a good guide, but a 5,000 trade sample size is a very good guide on how to navigate the future. Right. And based on that 5,000 trade sample size, that's what you always say, Jerry, is every trade has the same expectation. That is 100% correct. And yet we say that. And when we put on a trade, we have almost zero. Well, I have zero belief in anything or conviction in, you know, what that market is going to do. It's just, I, I think the more you, you know, put yourself away from that thinking, the better you are. Just, th you know, view it as a neutralized or some sort of objective bet in the markets. There's no belief in any of those positions. It reminds me of, um, so on this 14 hour long drive on Thursday, I, I started out listening to another audiobook actually um, from um, uh, one of my previous guests, actually, uh, Daniel Crosby, who wrote the book, uh, The Behavioral Investor. And he, he, he says something along the lines that, you know, good investment strategies has to be empirically supported, uh, theoretically sound and behaviorally rooted. And those, of course, are criteria that trend following uh, really meets and but you could say the same about value i mean the value probably uh, meets that as well but it doesn't change the fact that from time to time these strategies will be very difficult to to hold um, that's just the way it is but the data the evidence uh, you know it it doesn't lie and and certainly in our case for the trend followers I, mean, I guess the trend followers father or the fathers of trend following uh, they just decided to play the arts and ditch the story, you know, and of course it hasn't worked out so well in terms of making it a huge strategy in terms of assets under management, but I think it's probably served the investors who invested in, in these strategies really well, um, that that's our focus, you know. Um, so anyways, yeah, lots of good stuff. There's a couple of funny ones that Larry, you know, Larry, he, he's pretty funny on his uh, interviews. He uh, doesn't have a good filter but he's, one of them was, uh, he, I retweeted this, but then I listened to the video and I grabbed this quote. Uh, and he says, every trader should have their exit strategy set in place before they even start trading. You should never allow painful investments to linger. And then he says, let's say you're on a date and your date has terrible breath. You don't want to linger. So I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, it's good to have a guy like that talking trends. And I think one of his points in life is, uh, in general, is that trend following works in all areas of your life. Take small losses. Go with the trend. Add to winners. You want to get rich. Yeah, he, he, he does actually relate uh, his trend following philosophy a lot back to uh, relationships and marriage and, and all that good stuff. So, uh... Well, he's got many, many years of experience and that, you know, comes to show. It's really great to hear these things. Yeah. I actually listened also to his uh, audiobook on the flight back from the New York. Uh, uh, so uh, he's, uh, it's funny. It's a really funny write uh, or a book. So good stuff. Um, should we take a couple of questions and then we may end up with one final topic um, that came across my desk, which I'm sure you have some strong opinions on as well? Yes. Good. Okay. So the first question is from David. Uh, thanks for sending that in, David. And by the way, as usual, if you have a question for us, you just send to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we do our best to get it out in the next recording uh, for sure. But um, David writes, when designing a bearish, the bearish side of a strategy, A, should one ensure the strategy is 
um, the exact reflection of the bullish side. For example, if you uh, if the long entry is a hundred day high, should the short entry be a hundred day low, or do they end up being different, like hundred day high to get in, fifty day low to get uh, short? Uh, and then question B, should one expect the bearish side of a strategy to perform as well as the bullish side or would the bearish generally underperform the bullish side, even if it produces a positive return? So those were the first two um, questions. Uh, Moritz, what's, what's your view on this? Well, I'm a simple mind. So really, yes, it is symmetrical for me. I um, I enter the shorts using the same time frames as the longs. So... It is symmetrical in that respect. I'm I'm not saying that I'm, you know, I'm I'm long at the 200-day high, but in order to go short, I'm you know it's the 205-day low or something like that. I don't do that. It's it's the same window. Um, and then in terms of the the outcome, the PL outcome, it is, and we've mentioned that before in this podcast, it is skewed, I think, for the three of us uh, towards the long side of trades. Now, what does it mean? It, it means, you know, when you look at equities, there's a long bias in equities. When we look at the bonds, they've pretty much just gone up for the past decades, right? So the long positions will have made more money than the shorts. Um, now, it, you know, you may come to a different view with respect to commodities and um, currencies. Um, but what, what, like, my thinking on that is, it is still that the trades have the same expectation. And as we've said before, the longer we stay in this game of trading, we may enter a period when our short-sided trades start to become more profitable um, than our long-sided trades. So I don't want to rule it out. I don't want to, I don't want to make a firm statement in trend-following world saying that long-sided trades will always do better than short-sided trades. Because if I make this firm statement and really had that core belief that this is true, then really I would have to change my system and start favoring longs versus shorts. And I don't do that. I, you know, I stay with that neutral view of giving every trade the same risk, every trade the same chance to contribute vol and PL to the portfolio. So I'm agnostic and I don't want to make the forecast that say for the next 20 years, the long trades will make more money than the short trades. Jerry, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, definitely gets back to cutting your sample size in half if you treat the shorts different from the longs. I definitely think that uh, it's also a situation where we have no reason to believe that the shorts will continue to be worse or not as good as the longs. So anything can happen in the in the future. Uh, so I think it's a big edge. Uh, and uh, stability and robustness of your strategy to to have that uh, mindset and that philosophy when you build your systems. So it's like parenting. Really, you should treat, treat your children equally, and you should do the same with your with your training, exactly. uh, strategy. Right? I mean, yeah. uh, not surprising, uh, David. I, I I agree wholeheartedly with uh, Moritz and and uh, Jerry. I'm I'm noticing in your in your email. David, that you talk about when you design your bearish strategies. I wouldn't design bearish strategies in particular. Uh, I would just uh, 
design strategies for the markets. I mean, who knows if they're going to up and be up and down. I mean, I think people forget that from 1965 to 1981, for example, uh, U.S. equities were actually down six percent over that long period of time. So, you know, and of course, we know that the, the decade from 2000 to 2010, net net equities were down for that period. So, yeah, let's let, let's you know, time frame is very important and. Um, and therefore, you know, design something for the long run, not just to fit a, a certain market environment. Um, anyways, but thanks for your question. Um, next question is from Walter, and it's about position sizing. Um, he writes, uh, I was wondering if you have limits on position size for individual contracts. If you do, how are they determined? Do you have an enforced minimum level of volatility when calculating positions? I'm thinking of the Swiss franc in 2015. I think it was when the cap was lifted and it shot up by 30 to, uh, 20 to 30% in a day. Uh, a hard cap on position size or minimum volatility level would have prevented having huge position in the franc. Just wondering how you guys deal with this. Can I come to you again, Moritz, first? Just um, get your thoughts on it. Yes, 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 you can. Um, so those volatility floors... Um, or minimum ATRs, if you will, depending on how you look at that. Um, I do have that active on certain markets. And it's one of the things where kind of like, you know, hmm, why is it in there? Hasn't been in there in the system in, in years prior. But to me, it is a risk mitigation thing. Where do I have it? I have it in the short-term interest rates. I also had it in, um, in the Swiss franc, which is kind of like a managed currency. Um, well, definitely back in the like 2014-15 period before that break that was just mentioned, it was a uh, severely managed currency. So I have that in order to protect myself um, from those large moves. Um, and But I don't have it in the majority of the markets. So I don't have it in the boons. I don't have it in the equities. Uh, none of that. It's, it's really in, in those markets which have super, super low vol. Why not actually just have it in all markets? I mean, if it doesn't get yeah. hit, it doesn't yeah, get I could, hit. I could, it's just, you know, the, where, where I have it, the level I have it, those other markets aren't there yet. So I right. don't want to rule out that, you know, if, say, for instance, the the boons started to become so low vol, uh, maybe I will, you know, place the same cap on that market, but sure. the other markets just haven't been down there yet. Right, right. Okay, makes sense. Uh, do you use it as well, uh, Jerry? Oh, I, I think that's a pretty good idea. To have a max uh, position for the low vol markets, uh, or not trade them, or minimum ATR. Uh, a couple I've got, gone about it in different ways. Uh, it's not optimal, but it's probably a good idea. But I just in general, uh, I'm going to size the Swiss franc and any, all of these markets just based upon their correlation to other markets. So. I'm going to have a, I probably I look at the euro, the Swiss, and the Swedish uh, as being kind of correlated. So I scale those trades back a little, but uh, so yeah, just it's correlation, and it, you know, is it the same market? Is crude hitting oil, crude hitting oil, unleaded kind of similar? Silver, gold, platinum, kind of similar. So I'm not going to be able to do too much um, if something crazy happens in the Swiss. Apart from just uh, ha uh, luckily sizing it smaller because it's correlated to the euro, but if something else happens somewhere, I'm not interjecting a fundamental reason 
uh, that uh, this is dangerous. I'd probably kick it out of my portfolio uh, if I felt like liquidity or crazy stuff was happening. But there has been crazy stuff like in Mexican peso, Russian ruble. So I'm subject to uh, crazy stuff happening to some of my positions. But my only defense is I have 100 other markets, let's say, something like that. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I think it makes sense, uh, and and we do the same. Uh, and the other way you can do it, do it. You don't have to minimum. You don't have to impose necessarily a minimum, but you could, you could have a long term volatility level that you say that's you know if it's the sh if the short term vol is 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 lower than that, I just use the higher of the two. Uh, if you want to take into account that some markets can go through low volatility periods, but they may not reflect the long term level of risk in that market so there are many ways of doing it uh, Walter but I'm sure you can hear from the conversation that having something to prevent you from um, you know silly exposure uh, is always a good thing um, for sure all right final question uh, for this week is from Neil um, and let's see if I can get this uh, right um, here is my question. I hear you, Mr. Parker, Mr. Hyde talk and others talk about small losses. I'm not sure what that means. What is a small loss? I usually think that a small loss is 1% of a position. Now, I don't think you mean position. I think you mean account size here, Neil. I sometimes might have it slide a bit to 2%, uh, but my rule is usually 1%. And sometimes I let the market take out the position if at about Two, but usually, if it's more than one percent, it's due to a, a missed placement of a stop, and I just feel like letting the market stop it out for me. And if I break the rule to two percent, okay, I'm, I'm I'm just reading it, uh, Neil, the way you wrote it. So I hope we get the the the, the right uh, gist of your question. Um, and then you go on to talk a little bit more about these rules, uh, but I think we can just narrow it down to. Uh, to uh, you know, what are our thoughts about a small loss? What what is a small loss, and and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, just reading your question and um, and not necessarily reading it out loud, all of it. But I th I think the first thing I notice is that um, a stop loss for you is not necessarily a hard stop. It seems like you can let things you know slide a bit. So that's probably the first thing the three of us would would uh, argue against. I mean, a stop is a stop. You shouldn't you shouldn't you know change it you should follow your rules um and have it and and treat everything consistent uh, across your your uh, trades consistency is incredibly important actually when if you want to have success in, in in trend following um so don't sway away from your stop loss if it's set at one keep it at one but do it for everything you do um uh, even though and and we'll hear what jerry and moritz has to say uh in in a second but the 1% seems still large in my view. Of course, I don't know how many trades uh, or, or markets you trade. 1% seems healthy. 2% seems excessive in my view in terms of uh, loss on a single trade. Um, but let me turn it over to you, Jerry, and um, hear what your thoughts are on, on, on what is a small loss. Yeah, it's a percentage of your assets under management. So one seems uh, too much for me. And... Uh, as far as this question goes, this is uh, the being consistent and having a rule and not breaking the rule is is uh, the big, best advice we could give. Although I would caution, though, if you have uh, 
concentrated positions on and you think you're taking small uh, 25 basis point or 50 basis point loss but if you uh over trading the certain sectors or groups uh, you may be taking a one percent loss uh I've, I've done that before so 25 basis points 50 basis points sounds good to me yeah to me small losses if the market hits my initial stop and like you say Niels that stop must be on it at all cost right so it's say it's 50 bips of your equity at that point I have that small loss and you know I have so many of them countless almost um and I love them it's kind of like you know placed a bet and uh and it didn't work fine and you know but there will be the other bets which you know don't lead to small losses they lead to large gains um and those I love even more what I want to say is, you know, those positions which develop in the right direction, uh, you may have a lot of open profit on them. And then on that open or off that open profit, you can give back more than, say, the 50 bips, which I have just mentioned, right? So from a certain peak in equity or from a peak in open profit in a certain position, you can have a larger loss than, um, than, um, than the 50 bips. But then the question is, is that really a loss? It is not a loss of your core equity. It's just a give back on open profit, which, you know, doesn't mean that it needs to feel good, but it's an important distinction to make. Could also be a loss from the last time you logged into your account, Moritz. You never and, know. And certainly, right. Then <laughs> maybe I need to stop logging in, just, you know, blocking myself off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good stuff. Well, I hope that was useful um, to all of you um, sending questions in. And as mentioned, if you... If you want to um, get us to comment on some of your, uh, you know, uh, questions or ideas, um, just send it to info at toptradersonplug.com. What I could do now is just as as we normally do, just run through performance. Um, but I do want to, before we end today, if you're up for it, guys, I do want to comment. I do want to discuss a little bit some a great piece of analysis. Um, that I thought uh, of that came out uh, also in October. Um, which is um, by Abbey Capital. So the good people at Abbey Capital been in the business for a long time. Um, they allocate to trend followers. They don't. They actually started out as a trend follower, but um, but now they allocate to trend followers. And I think they have some really useful um, views and analysis uh, on some of the things that we uh, also get accused for from on a regular basis. So let me just run through the performance and let's get back to uh, some some interesting uh, conversation, I hope, uh, in a second. And of course, these numbers are always as of Thursday evening. I think Friday was a mixed day. I don't think there was any particular pattern where the managers were up or down. Um, so since it was as of Thursday, it actually also happens to be the full month of October. So the numbers you'll hear me quote here is is uh, the estimates for, for October. So the beta of 50 index ended the month of October down 2.57, but still up 6.38 for the year. SOCGEN CTA index down almost the same 2.53, uh, up 5.85 for the year. The SOCGEN trend index down 4.29 for the month of October, up 8.77 for the year. The SOCGEN short-term traders index pretty much flat, down one basis point for the month, up 1.82 for the year. And the bridge alternatives, the flat fee index, uh, down 3.49, but still up 8.03 for the year. So in line with, I guess, um, the experience that all of us had uh, in October. But I wanted to, um, if you don't mind, uh, I know you may not have read the the, the article, but I, I know you guys uh, have opinion about this. Um, 
Um, so Abbey Capital posted this, uh, published this great uh, analysis where they go into some of the key arguments that we've heard recently uh, when um, CTAs are pronounced quote-unquote dead or the strategy doesn't work, etc., etc. So, so there's always some of the same uh, reasons uh, being mentioned. Um, one is that there's just too much money uh, in the space. Uh, another one we hear often is that trend followers are being we're now being front run or gained by other strategies, um, shorter term strategies, and then also that um, and this was also something I, I I I think we talked about early in the year when Bloomberg talked about how um, you know markets were becoming too fast for trend followers and Trump's tweets were causing uh, the trend followers to uh, simply have become too slow to react to all of this. Um, so what um, what Abby does uh, very well, they go in and they deal with each of these uh, points. Um, and um, so um, their conclusion on, on these three points is that there is no justification or data to support that. Um, in terms of too much money in the space, they go in and they, they first of all look at the CTA space as a whole. How much is trend? How much is non-trend? Then they volatility adjusted the AUM, so to speak, back to, I think, 2008, 2009 numbers. Because the space may have grown nominally, but we know a lot of managers have levered down their their strategy. So on a volatility-adjusted basis, they they find that the industry has hardly grown or the trend-following space has hardly grown, whilst the underlying futures markets that we trade have gone up by several hundred percent in volume and open interest. So that's the first thing. Um, and then they also deal with this, whether markets have, uh, whether we are being front run, et cetera, et cetera. And they do some uh, analysis to, uh, uh, and I don't remember all the details, but they do some analysis to look at these things. Um, and, and they are able to conclude based on that analysis that that's really, again, not really founded in any of of the data. Um, and, and the same goes for whether the markets have become uh, you know, too fast for trend followers. So without going into all of the details, um, you know, but for now, as a just discussion point. Um, now, what they conclude, and I'd love to hear your take on that and, and of course, on all the other uh, p- uh, points. What they conclude is that what is more likely to be the case or the reason why uh, performance overall have been lower in the last decade, maybe uh, so from 2010 and to now, compared to maybe the noughts and, and, and the 90s, is that there has been much less variance in global GDP, meaning the last 10 years, central banks, policymakers have managed to keep global GDP relatively stable. And with stable GDP, you have less major trends, major moves in some of the markets that often react to this, which could be both on the commodity side and on the financial side. To me, that seems like a very reasonable um, argument. I've kind of seen the same on my own trend barometer. Um, And and so, uh, and actually in October, I had kind of the lowest reading that I've seen in many, many years. So, um, so I, I would be a subscriber to their argument uh, that, that that is more likely to be the reason compared to some of the other points that they make. Um, and, and just because you've had a 10-year period of maybe lower performance, 
that doesn't mean that you can't have strong performance in the following 10 years. And I I wanted to just put that in perspective in terms of equity markets um, because from, uh, and this is, is U.S. equity markets, I mean, from 1929 to 1943, if you had invested $1, you would only have $1.08 uh, after, you know, that 14-year period. But from 1944 to 1964, that $1 would have grown to $10.8, so massive performance. Then the following period, from 1965 to 1981, you would have lost 6%. That dollar would have fallen to $0.94. Cents. 1982 to 1999, again, very bullish uh, conditions. That $1 would have grown to almost $12. And then we had 2000 to 2010, where the investment of a dollar would have actually fallen to 91 cents so it shows you that there is a you know no reason that just because you've had a 10 15 year period of low performance that you couldn't have very very strong performance the following uh, period of time and i don't see why again why this would be any different from an asset class or quote unquote investment strategy like trend following anyways that was a long um introduction to this but i would love to hear your thoughts, uh, knowing full well you haven't read all the details, but I don't think we need to go into all the details. Um, but just in general, your your um, opinions, your reactions when you hear some of these um, arguments being put forward by someone who clearly understands the space, have been operating and allocating to manage the CTAs, trend followers for many decades. Uh, yeah, I mean... <sighs> I don't probably, I'm not as interested in trying to figure out why it's happened. I just think it's happened and it's a bummer and we have to look at our systems and our approach to see, you know, primarily if we've missed any big trends, we've missed some great opportunities, which I think this might be the third or fourth uh, recent paper I've read, basically coming to the conclusion that we haven't done anything necessarily wrong or we shouldn't expect good performance in the future just haven't had those big trends. Uh, as I've said, joking around when I was 25 and I heard about trend following, I immediately thought it was wonderful uh, diversification. Sure, it's fantastic. Knew nothing about it, but I just thought, you know, it boils down to are these big winning trades going to pay for the small losses? And if that's the case, then it would be great. I'll make 100% a year. And so I think that sometimes they don't. Uh, they don't pay for the losses, or they don't. They pay for them. But that's about all they do, and the returns are smallish, meager. So, I just uh, want to make sure I'm doing my part to make sure that I'm uh, trading the best I can and not missing good opportunities, which I guess we haven't had many, but we probably will, and we'll keep doing it. And as I've said many times, uh, every part that makes trend following great for me the risk control and the capital preservation without uh, sacrificing too much of the ability to make good money, I'm not willing to give up on any of those things. I'll just continue to make uh, low money or no money for the rest of my career if the alternative is abandoning the core principles of small losses and following price. Yeah. So what did we have there? We had the argument of, uh, or the opinion on the front running, um, I'd say, show me the data, show me the evidence. I haven't seen anything that's conclusive. Um, as long as there's no data and evidence on us being front run, I'll just file that away as an opinion. 
It's one opinion of many. So not worry too much about that. Then shorts or, you know, sorry, trends becoming more erratic and markets becoming shorter term. This is, you know, probably some recency bias on the events which we had in the past year, 2018 in particular, where we as longer term trend followers got got kind of like um, hit on the wrong foot. But relatively small sample size, if this is what people are referring to, um, when you look back, I assume over longer periods of time, all those, uh, you know, markets and all the data there must have been reversals in there as sharp as the ones that we had in the past year, we probably don't have them on our radar screen anymore. It also doesn't mean that going forward, every uh, correction is going to be as sharp. Um, we just don't know how markets are going to pan out. And I have no reason to um, to uh, you know ditch my trading system because of that. And then we had the um, the the argument about the AUM. I I always like that that question. I'd like to know for myself. Um, you know, we can look at the CTAs, trend following CTAs, and uh, look at their AUM. It doesn't tell us anything about their notional trading level to begin with. So vol adjusting that, as you say, Niels, is one step toward that, but. I think a lot of things are uh, mixed up here. There are some CTAs in there which are not trend followers. There are some CTAs in there which are short-term trend followers. We're missing all the guys like, you know, for instance, my firm where we're trading internally and we're not reporting it to any database. So how many of those firms are there? How large are there? How large are the private traders in our private accounts and, and what do they do? So it's very difficult, uh, I believe, to find the right number. Uh, it can only ever be ballpark, but like you say, even if even if our number were double than the number that you've mentioned, it would still, in my opinion, and you know, I may be wrong there. This is my hunch. I, it'll probably still be a small enough fraction of the overall market, so that we're not going to be impacting um, the overall, you know, market system, if you will. Good. If I yeah. may, if I may just add to that, I mean. Even if there were a lot more money in trend following, I mean, it's not like trend followers per se uh, trade against each other, right? We kind of trade exactly. in the same direction. So one, it could help. Now, it could, of course, mean that the turning points uh, became a little bit more uh, rapid and we might see mm -hmm. some more slippage. But I bet you, if you went and asked all the top managers today about their slippage, I bet you they would say that they've been able to improve the slippage and not actually seen any worsening of slippage. I agree. Look, and we're we're you know we're looking to diversify. We said that before. We're looking to diversify across time frames. We're looking to diversify and you know not just hit hit the market with one big large order and go to market with that thing. So we're in our own interest, right? We're, we're looking to kind of like smoothly go in and smoothly go out. So I'm not too concerned about that. And then the, the last argument about the GDP. Well, we know economies, they expand and they contract and that may cause trends. And if I remember correctly, the argument was that in the past 10 years, maybe because of globalization or um, um, central bank, uh, central bank uh, politics, yeah, which yeah. kind of like has been the same across the globe everywhere, that, you know, the differences between economic growth in different countries hasn't been as um, divergent or as strong as it's been in the past. And maybe that's true. But... Okay, fine. I, I I cannot worry about that. I'm I, you know on that argument. I sit firmly in Jerry's camp and just go like, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, doesn't really matter. It's it's you know part of the history now. We need to look forward. Well, 
offer a little dissenting view, uh, which is that um, sometimes uh, for CTAs, part of it's just part of the equation, the AUM, uh, because if the vol gets low in the S&P, the same trader with the same AUM can have twice the position or three times the position. So I think that um, is relevant for CTAs, you know, some of these uh, massive sell-offs in the S&P, Dow down 1,000, um, you know, and I kind of thought, well, maybe the vol targeting people are responsible for some of the, uh, some of that massive movement uh, because the S&P did slow down right before then a couple of years ago when the vol was really low. So those positions might have been a lot larger, increasing larger and larger, totally based upon the vol, nothing to do with the AUM. Um, and then again, I think uh, it's it's a it's, it could be a, uh, a situation as well. Even though I agree with everything you said, I think also that um, it doesn't matter what we're doing or how small we are if there are algos out there who want to take advantage of what we're doing, and it's in their best, and they can make a little bit of money off of it. It doesn't even matter if we're really really small. Uh, They'll, they'll make a little bit of money out, out, out of trying to figure out where our orders are, run those orders up, and then uh, get out, and then we're going to be taking a, a small loss. They'll sell it to us at the high, and then the market will go down. Lead, you know, I bought lead one day. It's down big two days in a row. I mean, I'm not paranoid about it. I'm just saying uh, it's, if it's in someone's best interest to, to do that, they can do it. Just set the computer up, and it'll do it. So... There could be bad people out there who want to find our orders and figure out what we're doing and harm our performance. And it could be very subtle. Uh, the bond sell-off, I mean, these massive sell-offs after these trends where we get just absolutely destroyed, crazy outsized moves, it just happens or there are people setting off those stops and we're going to make a lot less money on the big trends. I've said this before, so it's I'm not predicting it. I'm not trying to be paranoid. It's just a fact. Sure, sure. I mean, and and, and also, I think one thing just to add to that: a lot of these um, sudden spike in volume and 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 selling pressure and all of that. I mean, a lot of that actually also comes from the mutual fund industry. I mean, they have their robots or whatever it is coming in uh, every day to adjust uh, for flows and all of that, and that causes significant uh you know either upside or downside um you know pressure on prices as well so i mean it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where some of these uh triggers lie and and where some of that flow uh comes from but as as both of you say i mean it's just part of how markets are and and our our strategies have to be designed to and and i think they are i mean they are designed to cope with that um, and that's why we, going back to our our conversations last weekend in New York, I mean, to a large extent, we what we do is we realize and recognize risk every single day. That's why our performance records are inherently volatile. Other strategies don't do that. So they look safe, but they may not be. So it's just a difference, I guess, in philosophy and implementation and, and um, transparency. Exactly. Good stuff. Um, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that uh, topic. I hope lots of people will read the study and, um, and form their own opinion uh, on this, if it is important to them uh, to have a uh, 
reason uh, for uh, being being able to describe difference in performance um, in these strategies. Anyways, anything else you want to bring up before we um, wrap up our conversation today? No, not from my side. Um, have a great week, everybody. Yes, same here. Um, look forward to seeing you guys maybe early next year in warm weather yeah. in Florida. Absolutely, absolutely. We have to persuade uh, Moritz to uh, come to Florida and not... Uh, I think you may be able here. to do that. Ah, okay. <laughs> it could be that uh, promise of uh, VIP basketball tickets. Uh, you never know. We can't go yeah. into too much detail, but they're out there. and uh, I know. We are watching this space. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Um, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoy making these uh, episodes uh, for you. And, and if you feel you get any value from our conversations, please share it with one of your own uh, followers or one of your own friends. Uh, we would be grateful for that. Also, if you have time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, that really does help uh, other investors discover the Systematic Investor Series. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you as usual next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.